Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, there's been plenty of sound and fury as both the EU and UK limber up for those all-important future relationship negotiations starting next week. In Brussels, EU members formally adopted their negotiating mandate while in London, the UK responded with its opening position. And, it's fair to say, both sides are very far apart on the big, important issues. None more important than the Irish Protocol, with briefings from Downing Street last weekend that the UK was looking for ways to avoid implementing what the EU says are mandatory checks and controls on the Irish Sea. With the UK threatening to walk away from the negotiations as early as June, we'll assess the prospects for the talks collapsing and what it will mean for the future relationship and the island of Ireland. But first, Sean, to you in London today, where Michael Gove was on his feet in the House of Commons answering questions on the UK's negotiating mandate. What kind of a tone was he striking with regards to the negotiations? Was it the hardline tone we've heard from the UK before? Was it more conciliatory? And, and what did he have to say about Ireland? Well, certainly in terms of the briefings that had gone before it in the past week, this was quite an emollient statement by Mr. Gove, who, as we know, is a very skillful parliamentary operator and orator, he wasn't turning on the uh, rhetorical flourishes. Uh, he wasn't laying into the EU. He was putting down very firm markers on things like level playing field, like European Court of Justice, like fisheries, the areas that have been well flagged as the uh, potential flashpoints, the most likely flashpoints, and the areas where the uh, UK is most insistent on digging in its heels. Uh, But in general, I thought his tone uh, was uh, pretty emollient, pretty professional, uh, pretty smooth, Uh, wasn't really... uh, going out of his way, I thought, to uh, antagonise the European Union. Uh, But he did have a few uh, hard things to say, but none of it particularly surprising. He has said, and it's been said in recent days, that all the UK is asking for is the same treatment that has been given to other trading partners of the European Union and that the UK feels it's unfairly burdened by European conditionality, which hasn't been at play in other trade agreements. That seems to be one of the main planks in what he was saying in the Commons today. Yeah, that is uh, the uh, UK's uh, view on, on how this process is starting to uh, to line up. On the other hand, the European Union's view is we've never done a, uh, offered a deal like this to anybody else, so it is without precedent uh, the range and scope and depth of the deal uh, that you would expect us, the European Union, to uh, impose additional uh, conditionality along on with that uh, because, reminder to them, um, in the uh, documents published this week and in the statements by Michel Barnier, the UK is not a European Union member state and therefore it doesn't get all the nice stuff that uh, EU members uh, do get. Uh, it is going to take a lesser uh, deal, a lesser uh, situation and the nature of that deal that they end up with uh, will come with strings attached. It just depends. Uh, Barnier spoke of a mechanical relationship between uh, what you seek agreement on and the amount of conditionality that comes with it. Uh, But also they are been stressing right from the political declaration last year, this issue of the geographical proximity. uh, And that 
is a really important thing uh, from the European side. And they're saying that's why it's not like other agreements with the Japanese. I mean, the, the Barnier was asked um, on, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm losing track of the speeches and the outings of these guys at this stage. Uh, but he was asked about why uh, isn't there uh, a fishing agreement between uh, Japan and the uh, European Union or Canada and the European Union. And he said, it's very simple. We don't share coastal fishing resources with Canada or Japan. Uh, That's why we're uh, insisting on having a fisheries agreement there. Uh, The British side, Mr. Gove, and we know he comes from uh, a fishing industry background himself, he was very strong on this, uh, saying there's no way we're going to have a fisheries agreement uh, and and link uh, agreement on fisheries to uh, trade and a free trade uh, agreement. Uh, So they want to completely separate those uh, things out. That goes against the uh, both the letter and I guess the spirit of the uh, political declaration uh, that was issued last year. And of course, the EU's own negotiating mandate that was uh, signed off by the ministers on Tuesday. Tony, the options that were offered way back in in terms of uh, trading arrangements to the UK or how they were characterised was you can either have Canada or Norway. This wouldn't be bespoke. There would be off-the-peg structures offered to the UK. Has that changed? And if so, why? Well, you you had the famous slide from 2017 where Michel Barnier uh, looked at all the UK's red lines, which was, you know, being out of the single market, being out of the customs union, avoiding the remit of the European Court of Justice. And when you applied all those red lines, what you were left with was uh, basically a, a basic free trade agreement like the one that they had with Canada, which is uh, most of the tariffs uh, abolished, but some tariffs on sensitive agricultural products and significant restrictions on services between both sides. Um, So so this has become a bit of a bone of contention between Britain and the EU as to whether uh, the EU was being mischievous or, or disingenuous in saying that back in 2017, Canada was really all that was left for the UK based on its own red lines. Uh, But the the EU has obviously qualified that definition by saying, uh, yes, you're left with Canada if you apply all your your red lines, but at the same time, you're not Canada. So you have to have this extra qualification, which is the level playing field, um, because UK companies, as it is, are deeply enmeshed in the single market. You know, there's 40 years of trade that's gone on. You've got companies in the UK who have customers in the EU. They've got supply chains. They've got they've built up a tradition and a history of commerce between uh, the UK and the EU. And if you suddenly see that the UK is out of the single market regulatory requirements, then you know you can argue quite persuasively that that would give the UK a huge advantage since they have all that, that they have that footprint there already they have all those customers if they're allowed to just keep selling into the single market without complying with um, the regulations of the single market the standards that the single market requires not just in terms of product safety but how the products are made labor laws you know environmental requirements climate change requirements and so on um so that's the essential dispute between uh, both sides and is, the, is there a regret on the part of the week. eu that it was characterized then as canada because it, to a certain degree that's come back to bite it the naming of the canada the the template for a trade deal as canada it's been taken literally on the uk side or certainly been used literally on the uk side and saying well Let's have that. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think you have to um, factor in 
to all of this stuff, uh, the fact that, you know, the UK is constantly arguing with itself uh, on Brexit from the very beginning. You know, it's it's a lot of the pronouncements by the UK government, the establishment, the press are all part of a of a political uh, sort of toxic environment where you have to keep ramming home that Brexit's a good idea and that Britain is going to succeed at Brexit, whereas the EU takes a much more patrician, uh, somewhat calmer approach to this, uh, saying, well, you, you know, you can say what you like, but you know, w w you want a free trade agreement with us, then these are the terms on which uh, you have that agreement. And as far as your red lines are concerned, you know, it looks like a Canada-type Canada agreement. If you wanted higher alignment uh, and, and higher access, then that requires higher alignment uh, and that gets you closer to Norway. Um, but ultimately, you know, w w both sides now accept that it's going to be a fairly bare-bones free trade agreement and both sides now accept that that, mean that was going to mean fr friction and, and, you know, the big difference nowadays is that Boris Johnson doesn't mind friction, whereas Theresa May did, did her level best to avoid friction. Um, and that was when you got the whole kind of cake argument back in the day. But you don't hear too much about cake at the moment, although some commentators are ready today looking at what the UK mandate says. They do seem to want quite a bit of good stuff. Um, you know, they do seem to want quite a bit of access. Uh, and in terms of the level playing field, what they're saying is, well... You know, we, we, we're two sovereign equals. We'll arrange our own regulatory and standards regime and you'll just have to trust us and we'll trust you. And uh, the, the big, I mean, there was a briefing this afternoon uh, for, for European journalists uh, in, in Brussels with the, with the UK mission. And the, the word that kept cropping up was precedent. You know, these are all things that are have a precedent in existing free trade agreements with, with Canada, with Japan, with South Korea. But of course, you keep getting knockback from the EU saying, well, you know, the UK is not like Canada or Japan or, or South Korea. Sean Michael Gove was speaking in, in the comments today. He was also uh, fielding questions. But in, in advance of him speaking, there were briefings coming out of number 10 that Brussels itself had dropped elements of the political declaration when it published its own negotiating mandate this week. And therefore, Britain on its side is entitled to be selective with what's in the political declaration as well. Can you explain what the emphasis is on the UK side of things in terms of what it doesn't really want to cleave to in the uh, political declaration and what they're saying about how Brussels uh, has departed from the terms of the political declaration as well? Well, I'm not sure what Downing Street is on about, to be honest, because they're they're using the political declaration one way for certain purposes and another way for other purposes. Uh, for example, when all the talk uh, in Brussels was it's going to be really hard to finish the deal by the end of the year, I don't think we'll get to everything. Uh, you know, really, this thing is, is too much to try and fit into 10 months. Uh, the British were saying, oh, the political declaration says it has to be done. Uh, by the end of the year, the EU have signed up to this. They're committed to that and they just have to get on with it and deliver. Uh, but then uh, if there's things like uh, the, a Canada-type free trade arrangement or uh, having a, a role for the uh, European Court of Justice, only incidentally in terms of interpreting uh, EU law being the final uh, arbiter of EU law, so EU law does not end up being interpreted by some other quasi-judicial uh, body that uh, is outside of the European Union. Uh, but things like that are being thrown back. So, uh, you know, it looks like a bit of uh, distraction, throwing out a bit of chaff and 
kick up a bit of dust and smoke to distract people from what's actually going on here. Is this largely noise? Is this people emphasising positions that they will ultimately have to compromise on, Sean? Well, everybody, when they're launching their ship, likes to make a bit of a a party out of it and crack the champagne off the hull uh, and send it off into the waters and hope for the best. Uh, So, you know, you anticipate a a bit of that going on. I mean, flicking through these two negotiating mandates, lining them up, uh, it doesn't seem to me that there's uh, insurmountable differences throughout these documents. Yes, there are uh, problematic areas and there are a few gaps, indeed chasms uh, in there. But a lot of the stuff, uh, there does seem to be quite a, a degree of common objective uh, in what they're trying to uh, uh, attain, uh, which is why I think the British, when uh, officials there have been talking about uh, trying to get a lot of progress, <coughs> excuse me, going by June and have real tangible uh, progress, have the outlines uh, of a deal in place by June. It doesn't necessarily sound terribly far-fetched to me that uh, uh, that is certainly more than theoretically possible. Uh, they could make quite a degree of progress, I feel, on quite a range of areas. Uh, but there is going to be problems when you come down to the uh, detailing of it. I mean, things like uh, road transport, they're both talking about having uh, a liberalised road transport regime so that truckers from the EU and the UK could operate in each other's markets. But the EU document is more restrictive, saying no cabotage rights for British drivers. That is, you can't pick up loads within one EU state and deliver it to another state. Or, you know, if a British truck driver comes to France, he can't pick up a load in France and deliver it somewhere else in France. And then there is this big uh, dispute over the disputes, or more specifically, the dispute resolution mechanisms and what should be referred to dispute resolution mechanisms uh, or not. Things like subsidies uh, the British want uh, out of dispute resolution mechanisms trade and environmental standards as well. And they're citing, again, this issue of the precedents, the Canada deal, the Japan deal, the South Korea deal. Uh, None of them have uh, the reference to the dispute resolution mechanisms uh, for things like uh, environmental protection. Uh, But the British are also saying that the agreement that's struck between the EU and Britain uh, should include reciprocal commitments not to weaken or reduce the level of protection Uh, afforded by environmental laws in order to encourage trade or investment. So it's a kind of a a, a non-regression, I guess, uh, there, that both sides are saying, look, you know, we we all love the environment, so we're all a bunch of tree huggers now. Uh, Let's have it written down here that we're not going to do anything uh, that will be damaging to the environment uh, as we each strive to do a bit of uh, competitive trade with each other. That all sounds fine, uh, but... How do you regulate it is a, a, an issue here. And if the British are saying we don't want it to be regulated by anybody, uh, we're back to that issue of, uh, as you said, uh, trust us. And then there is this thing about the uh, the geographical proximity. And I think it is a, a genuine issue here. Uh, I don't think this is something that is being uh, made up by the, uh, the European Union. I mean, we've talked before on this podcast about Canada plus 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 and plus 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 and the myriad of pluses it's all those extra pluses are the things that you build on top of the Canada deal so if the Canada deal is a template or a model that you take off the shelf and that's what the British are suggesting let's start with this and then add a few pluses into it well it's arguing over the pluses more so than necessarily the content of the Canada deal uh, which is how I see this thing 
uh, starting to evolve forward. But Sean, I'll come back to you for some of the reaction you've got from uh, MPs from Northern Ireland with regard to some of the discussions in Michael Gove and the implementation of the Irish Protocol. But Michel Barnier thumped the podium at one point earlier in the week, Tony, in his frustration with the talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol, its circumvention by the UK, non-implementation and non-construction of the necessary infrastructure to carry out checks. How great a source of frustration is this within Brussels, something that I'm sure people over there thought was put to bed, and indeed here in Dublin thought was put to bed back in the withdrawal agreement? Yeah, I mean, it it has grown in stature, that particular worry here in Brussels. It's, it's certainly become a bit of a totemic issue in terms of trust and... I was actually surprised on Tuesday when EU foreign and European affairs ministers came to Brussels to formally adopt the the mandate, uh, how many of them actually referred to the Irish protocol. Um, Michael Roth, who's the German uh, European affairs minister, said, my message to my friends in London is keep your promises. Um, So they do see this as a... A, a, a cause uh, and an issue of trust. If if we're going to build a future relationship based on trust, then how can we trust you if you are already uh, welching or backsliding on the protocol, which is something you have agreed and is now internationally uh, legally binding? Um, I mean, Michel Barnier was was banging the the podium uh, more in relation to saying that every word counts in the political declaration, but he was certainly very robust in his uh, comments on the um, Irish protocol. He had a real swipe at Brandon Lewis, the new Northern Secretary, who on his first day said there would be no border in the Irish Sea. Uh, He said basically he would invite Mr Lewis to read the withdrawal agreement and read the commitments that uh, both sides have entered into. Um, There is a suspicion, I think, that the UK is being a laggard on this issue in the hope that later on this year they can kind of use the protocol as a bit of leverage in the free trade negotiations. Um, If they start building infrastructure immediately and start putting IT systems in place to accommodate uh, checks and controls on all that traffic coming across from the from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, uh, then you might argue that they're you know they're they're just meekly complying with what they've agreed to, uh, rather than trying to get some more leverage. I mean the point here is that and and there was a, again the the House of Lords EU committee was in uh, Stormont this week, talking to stakeholders uh, like uh, Belfast Airport, Belfast Harbour, uh, the the head of Stenelink Haulage Association in Belfast. I mean, they were all frantically saying to the to the lords who were in the committee, look, you know, we are going to be facing massive disruption, wholesale changes to the way companies do business, wholesale paperwork mountains, costs, um, checks and controls. Uh, we don't we're not able to put in place the processes until we know what the UK government is going to do about it. Uh, and if and once you do put in processes, they will reflect the added bureaucracy and added bureaucracy means infrastructure. Um, so all these things are connected. Uh, and this was something that Michel Barnier talked about and Simon Coveney as well when he came over on Tuesday. Uh, we need to see evidence of infrastructure happening because if, if there is evidence of it happening, it means that the UK is kind of crystallising what its obligations are. Um, uh, but, you know, you can see that this is going to be a massive undertaking for the UK to 
you know, I mean, there, there are 12 sailings a day between Belfast and, and Carn Ryan uh, on, you know, Stena Link uh, sailings, you know, thousands upon thousands of consignments, a lot of it mixed consignments. So, it might, you know, there might be different kinds of goods that would attract a different tariff or a different regulatory requirement. Um, OK, a lot of these goods might be going to what they call a dead end host, which would be a supermarket like Asda, where, you know, that's where they end up. They're not going to go anywhere else. But, you know, you have to check all these things and you have to have systems there in place to know that they're not going to go anywhere else. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the suspicion is in Brussels that the UK wants to use the Joint Committee, which is going to implement this whole thing, that they want to use that to try and reopen the negotiations and try and whittle down the uh, degree of checks and controls that are there. The EU's response to that is, you've agreed this. Secondly, the UK already implements the EU's customs code for rest of world freight. Uh, you just need to do it in Belfast and, and uh, Larn and uh, Belfast Airport, and you need to scale up the way it's done. Sean, I think the question's been asked by Northern Ireland MPs in the Commons today of Michael Gove was, what's going on here? We're none the wiser. They're still asking questions. We're months on from the signing of the withdrawal agreement and the release of the political declaration. Negotiations are going to begin next week. The clock is ticking down towards the end of the year, indeed the middle of the year, and MPs in Northern Ireland who presumably are having their constituency offices' doors thumped by businesses are asking what's going on here. They are asking what's going on and... uh some of them, and when I say some of them, I mean Claire Hanna from the SDLP told me afterwards she's none the wiser having listened to it and put down uh, a question herself to Mr Gove uh, in the session this morning. Uh, essentially, he was saying two things and it's uh, mutually contradictory or so we uh, believe at the moment, saying to the likes of Jim Shannon from the DUP, there will be no border in the Irish Sea, uh, but also saying to Claire Hanna and others, we will implement the agreements that we've already made and we will stick by our international treaty obligations. So the official answer on the uh, ball hop in the Sunday Times last weekend about uh, are you going to uh, not implement the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, the official answer is yes, we will implement it because we have signed up to this and we've ratified it and it's an international treaty and we always uh, implement things that we've agreed to. Uh, On the other hand, he's still saying there won't be any border in the Irish Sea uh, so, yeah, wait and see what happens is, is the answer to that one. What kind of checks will there be? Border. There have to be checks. We know there have to be checks. And indeed, some of the British officials have been talking about building infrastructure to check goods coming in from the EU, uh, thinking about the east coast of the UK, uh, of England in particular, uh, checking what's coming in uh, that way and saying, yeah, we have to build infrastructure for that. Uh, a lot of it will be computer systems. Uh, because a lot of this uh, paperwork and pre-approval for moving goods can be done electronically. But, you know, somewhere along the line, some trucks at least have got to be open occasionally uh, to check that uh, what is declared electronically is indeed what is going through. So uh, if that infrastructure isn't in place, uh, it's going to have to be built and built pretty rapidly. And that's what we heard Barnier talking about on Tuesday in particular uh, and stressing that they want to see action moving in parallel with these uh, future relationship talks that month by month they will be looking at what the British are actually doing in terms of recruiting customs officers, building computer infrastructure, testing and rolling out the uh, 
online services that are necessary and presumably building uh, sheds and other checking right. facilities for physically or, or, or else doing what? what has to be done. Or else what, Tony? Or, well, um, well, first of all, the Barnier made it clear that the you know progress in the free trade negotiations uh, requires progress in implementing the withdrawal agreement, in particular the protocol. Um, so they can slow up the uh, free trade negotiations if they feel that the UK is is uh, you know backsliding on its commitments. Um, you sure, could but argue, that, that's, that's, that's that priced in already. They're, 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 well, yes, by the EU's own assessment, that, they, um, they don't even think that the full agreement will be concluded by the back end of the year. The UK has projected itself as being pretty sanguine about the idea of an Australia-style deal, a.k.a. no deal. So where's the leverage? Well, I mean, ultimately, the UK is, you know, pr- projecting itself in the world as uh, an independent, sovereign country, but one that you would might you might like to trust in international agreements. And certainly, you know, if the UK breaches the first treaty it has signed as an independent country, then that's not going to look very good. Um, the UK, the EU, through the withdrawal agreement, there are dispute uh, mechanisms that they can. Uh, that they can take up. Uh, the ECJ can get involved if the UK is not implementing the protocol that's stitched in there. Uh, action can be taken through the UK courts as well. Uh, I mean, civil servants have to obey the law and, and the UK law says that they have signed up to the protocol and the protocol requires checks and controls on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. So, you know, th- this is not something that you can necessarily take lightly uh, or sort of shrug off with with a well you know we're, we're, we're happy to be out anyway I mean the, the obligations are there um, and there there are definitely legal right. routes open to the European you're reminded Union. of maybe of the the last weeks of June in sixth class primary school where the behavior among some of the lads gets a bit obstreperous on the basis of teacher can't touch them anymore well the teacher yeah, but they're all the headed for the can. big school aren't they so th- their reputation might precede them. So uh, the the big school in this case is the global trading environment. And if the British are seen to be resiling from an agreement, an international treaty, which they've already made, how well is that going to go down amongst potential uh, trade partners? I mean, you ask the Chinese about treaties with the British, uh, they'll, uh, with their lengthy memories and even more lengthy record keeping, uh, they'll tell you chapter and verse about it. And then maybe the British would argue, though, to other potential it. trading partners that the European Union overextended themselves, that in more modest trade agreements, drier, free, classic free trade agreements with other partners, that the same demands wouldn't be made in terms of jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice and that. And, and therefore, Britain is, is more trustworthy because there is less at stake for Britain. Well, that's a nice argument. I wish them luck with it and they can try it out and see how they get on. Uh, see what happens. Uh, remember, for most uh, countries around the world, the EU is their number one trading partner. Uh, Britain isn't. Anyway, come the middle of this year, <laughs> come the middle of this year, it's decision time as to whether or not there will be an extension requested from the European Union and whether or not it be granted in terms of the 31st of December deadline and whether or not to extend the transition period. The UK says it doesn't want to do that. The the EU has said that the trade deal is unlikely to be concluded by the back end of the year, but it, but it is possible. And now we have the idea that the UK could walk away entirely 
from the negotiations as early as June. Where did that come from, Sean, and how seriously has it been taken, Tony? You might pick up off the back of Sean when he's done. Well, there is a a review uh, mechanism built into this uh, uh, future relationship negotiation, and uh, it takes place in June. Uh, And by then, they're saying, look, either we're serious about making progress on this, uh, and if we are, that's fine, we go ahead with it. Uh, And if we don't, um, well, then we'll just basically stop the negotiations and concentrate on uh, the what they're calling the orderly withdrawal from the transition period. So getting ready for WTO-type trading relationship uh, with the European Union uh, and the rest of the world. Um, although in this case, it's primarily with the European Union uh, that they have to make the changes in relation to. So that's where they would concentrate their energies. Uh, we've also got that break point for, I think, the 1st of July is, there, is what uh, the declaration on the future relationship uh, pitches as the prospective date for having a fisheries deal negotiated and signed off on. So you've got a, a fair amount of work to get through uh, between now and uh, the middle to end of June uh, anyway. Uh, it's pretty ambitious uh, timetable. If there is progress in it, uh, that that break point, as I say, is already built into the timetable. And uh, that's also the the point at which they were theoretically supposed to ask for an extension if they wanted to have one, although the British have made it very clear they don't want to have any extension uh, to the talks process. Michael Gove referring back to his old days in newspapers saying, when I was an editor in papers, I didn't set deadlines to torment journalists. I set them because we had to get work done and get newspapers out. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think just to follow up there, the the EU's response to that threat to walk away, it it was very polite and a little cool today because the the European Commission was asked about it at their daily briefing and they just said, well, we've noted the UK has published its mandate uh, and we look forward to the negotiations starting next week. But uh, the point was made that, uh, you know, if the UK does go for, um, you know, a very basic free trade agreement, then there's going to be a fair amount of friction anyway. So, you know, at what point does no deal planning become uh, bare bones free trade agreement planning? You know, the, the, the plans are going to have to be ruled out anyway. Um, so you may as well be hung for a lamb as a sheep uh, in that regard. I mean, I think I think the it is it is really going to get very interesting in the second half of the year because they, they will have got over the, um, you know, the rendezvous of, of June. If the talks are still going on, then we will be getting just we'll start feeling pressure of getting a deal done by by october to give everybody time to ratify uh, whatever is agreed um and and that's why the french have been so persistent on the level playing field issue emmanuel macron the president of france knows that he cannot um cope with a political situation where the UK gets a nice deal and Brexit is deemed uh, at the end of the day to be something of a success. He's going to be running for uh, as for the presidential elections next year and he's going to be up against Marine Le Pen again. So, uh, you know, there's a lot at stake for a country like France to, to hold out and to be as tough as possible with the UK. For a country like Ireland, you know, which is so exposed to UK trade, the temptation will be, uh, look, we need a deal. Uh, we need to get this over the line. We've got to start being flexible. So, of course, the EU and all the me- all the ministers who came here on Tuesday kept 
up the mantra of EU unity and solidarity, that could really come under, under strain uh, in the second part of this year. And of course, the UK knows that and they will be doing everything they can to try and pick off one member state after another uh, bilaterally to try and, uh, you know, gaslight them into taking a more pragmatic approach to, uh, to certain issues. So next week, negotiations begin. David Frost is off to Brussels. Sean, you're going to be there. How many people are, is, is David Frost bringing with them, roughly? And what do we expect to come out? Well, he's bringing about 100 people. So, uh, yeah, quite a few rooms in the Berlaymont. Uh, I presume that's where they're going to be uh, meeting. Uh, will be filled up. They'll be split into different teams. I mean, there's about 10 different tracks uh, to be negotiated and they're all going to be negotiated in parallel. So I presume it's going to be both sides sitting on either side of a table, uh, shoving piles of paper back and forth uh, to each other, uh, digesting them, then coming back into the room and seeing where else they they can do back and forth and what areas of progress they can make. Uh, and then there's another round of talks scheduled for here in London on the 18th day after St. Patrick's Day, uh, in which case they will pick up. Now, if things were to blow up uh, amidst a lot of hysterical shouting and grandstanding, uh, you could have uh, something falling apart very, very quickly. But I, I somehow don't think either side are interested in, in doing that. And I think uh, an indicator of that was the uh, that tone struck by Michael Gove in presenting this negotiating mandate today. And as I say, when you start working down through uh, the, the pages uh, of both sides. You can see there's a lot of preparatory work has been done already. So uh, then it's time for the trade negotiators to get on with crunching the details. And an awful lot of trade talk is detail, really uh, mind-numbing, soul-destroying detail, uh, according to people who've done it in the past. But if there's a will, there's a way to get a lot of this done because of the fact that Britain is a country that's leaving the European Union rather than a country that is trying to get closer to the European Union. Uh, And so when we talk about precedence, and we've said about this before, it is an unprecedented situation that a member state is leaving. So that calls for a different approach from the European Union rather than just taking precedence off the shelf, although no doubt they will be doing some of that as well because it would help uh, speed up the talks. But that lack of precedent for a member state leaving the union and new barriers being inserted rather than old barriers being taken away, that is a different type of situation and will call for a different type of trade talks. Gross, unbelievable, bizarre, unprecedented. That's it for me, Colm Omunga and RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RTE's London Correspondent here in London for the moment. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. I'll be taking a couple of weeks uh, paternity leave, but I'll be back with you uh, and we'll leave the podcast in the very capable hands of Colm and Sean. Uh, Thanks for listening.